Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with Phil Dave, Kate Fulton and Clive Roslin. Coming up on this episode, in a bumper edition this week, we're going to be speaking to Rabbi David Mason of Muswell Hill Synagogue. He's one of the signatories on a letter that was sent to the Labour National Executive Committee expressing concerns over their stance on not adopting the IHRA's definition of anti-Semitism. We're also going to be hearing from one Marlon Solomon, who is an actor, and he's going to tell us about his show Conspiracy Theory, A Lizard's Tale, and it's how he he uses his performance to try and help expel some of the myths surrounding the Jewish community. We'll also hear, frankly, the heart-wrenching story from Juliet Berman about the loss of her daughter Shani and why her family are encouraging the community to try and help raise money for cardiac research through a football game lasting no less than 12 hours. More about that later. And finally, but by absolutely no means least, we'll be hearing from Alan Bernstein, the president of the Felstein Society, and he'll tell us why his organisation will be finding out who exactly will light a candle in remembrance of those who lost their lives during the pogroms 100 years ago. But before all of that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week, here's Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the Labour Party's governing body approving a new code of conduct on anti-Semitism, ignoring the chief rabbi's warning that doing so would send a message of contempt. Ephraim Mervis joined forces with more than 60 rabbis from across the religious spectrum in a show of unity against the code, which fails to adopt the full definition of anti-Semitism as laid down by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. After the decision, senior Labour MP Dame Margaret Hodge, who's Jewish, launched a verbal assault on leader Jeremy Corbyn about his handling of the whole controversy, calling him an anti-Semite and a racist. Mr Corbyn apparently told her he was sorry she felt like that. It was later reported that Dame Margaret could face disciplinary action, although Corbyn will apparently not be a complainant. The Jewish student who was stopped from leading an Israel tour for Reform Jews after she'd participated in the so-called Kaddish for Gaza earlier this year has now been taken on as a tour leader by liberal Judaism instead. Nina Morris-Evans, who's an Oxford University undergraduate, flew out for the month-long tour with the blessing of senior liberal rabbi Danny Rich. A project which aims to take 200 university students and leaders to Auschwitz with the Holocaust Educational Trust has been launched. An announcement was made earlier this year that government funding of £144,000 was being made available to extend the HET's Lessons from Auschwitz programme, which had previously only been available to schools and colleges. The Union for Jewish Students, UJS, said Holocaust denial literature has appeared on campuses in recent years, so the need for the project was clear. And finally, the British family of a Greek Jewish woman have thanked the community in the UK for helping her to get life-saving treatment in Israel. Liat Papantonio, who's 48, has a rare type of bone cancer. She's already had specialist treatment at the Soraski Medical Centre in Tel Aviv, but now needs complicated surgery for which more money is needed. The figure is put at £85,000 and there's an online fundraising page under the heading Save Liat, where donations can be made. 
Viv, thank you very much indeed. And let's begin this episode of The Jewish Views in traditional fashion, where we have a glance over your copy of The Jewish News for this week. And this week, what a treat. We have not one, but two people to review it for you. We have news editor Justin Cohen and features editor Fran Wolfish. Well, welcome to you both, I guess. But Justin, we're going to start off with you and in particular on the front page and a headline that reads very clearly and very boldly, you are an anti-Semite. Not you, Justin. Who are we talking about by any chance? Yes, this is not the words of the Jewish News, but the words of one of Jeremy Corbyn's own MPs, senior MPs, Margaret Hodge, former minister, a fighter against BNP racism. This is very stark language and, and the most stark language we've heard on this issue in the three years that it's been rumbling on. And pointedly, even stronger than anything we've heard from any Jewish community leader during that time. Margaret Hodge was specifically reacting in the House of Commons. She approached Jeremy Corbyn in the wake of the passing by the National Executive Committee of the Code of Conduct that's been so controversial in recent days. It's produced an avalanche of anger, I would say, from across the community. And it's not as if the Jewish community hadn't made its feelings known and, and, and the party didn't know the consequences before they passed this. But past it, they did, rejecting the full IHRA definition of anti-Semitism in the process. And of course, let us not overlook Jeremy Corbyn's reaction to when Margaret Hodge called him an anti-Semite was as relaxed as ever. And in any interview that you did with him as well was sort of very similar fashion where he simply replied, I believe, I'm, I'm so sorry you feel like that. What a wishy-washy response. It, it's not even, of course not. It's not even a rejection. It's just a, oh, well, if you say so. Yeah, very much consistent with what we've seen in recent years. And as you say, Phil, with the interview that I did with him, no sign of any emotion being accused of such a thing, kind of emotion you'd expect from, from anyone that, you know, is a lifelong anti-racism campaigner, as Jeremy Corbyn likes to see himself. None of that, but rather a very kind of removed response and not, not a very human response, I would suggest. Are you suggesting then that they're not going to change their view one, one way or another, the Labour Party, about Judaism or about Jews? I think that this is a new low, and we've had many of those in recent years. For so many people across the Jewish community, across the religious spectrum, across the political spectrum, to unite very clearly in saying that the IHRA definition is the only acceptable definition and it's up to the Jewish community to define what anti-Semitism is. And for the party then to decide that they know better and to, in the face of all that, to choose a slightly different version, one that doesn't include all the examples of anti-Semitism that accompanies the IHRA definition, is quite disturbing and, and an illustration of where we're at now. And I have to say, after all this, after we gathered in, in Parliament Square in unprecedented numbers, after rabbis from across the spectrum, from ultra-Orthodox to ultra-progressive, gathered or, or, or signed a letter together, again, unprecedented. After all that, it's no surprise that uh, someone like Margaret Hodge doesn't really know how else to react, where else to go, what else to do to get the Jewish community's voices heard. Well, this story rumbles on, continues to rumble on. We'll hear more about it a little later on in the show. But there are some other stories in the paper, unbelievably enough, and the ramifications from Kurdish for Gaza are still being felt, aren't they? 
Absolutely. We've had a number of developments on this story this week. Of course, many people will remember how Nina Morris-Evans, who was one of the young people involved in Kaddish for Gaza, had previously been told that she could lead her Israel tour for RSY Netzer with the proviso that she had a mentoring scheme in place with Rabbi Laura Jana Klausner, the head of Reform Judaism. Then she was told that she couldn't, after all, lead that tour. Now, the latest twist is that liberal Judaism have taken on her on with a particular role, a, social, uh, I think a welfare officer within their tour. So that's, that's the latest development on that. But the, there's a bigger picture here. And, and really, the issue of how the mainstream of the Jewish community continues to engage with young people who are you know, increasingly ready to criticise Israel and are doing so within the mainstream of the community. But the concern would be how you react to that, how you enable that criticism without pushing them out into the absolute fringes of the community. And this is really the focus of the debate that took place this week at JW3 called Ceasefire. Unfortunately, as, as people who read this story will, will realise very quickly, it was anything but a ceasefire in that room. You had people who had taken part in Kaddish for Gaza making their views clear, talking about how they'd face abuse on social media and elsewhere. And at the same time, you had flag-waving Israel supporters, uh, you know, unquestioning Israel supporters, saying that, that accusations of abuse were simply a cover for deflecting from criticism of, of that Kaddish event in itself. The fact is these people were abused in, in the most disgusting of ways. But what I think a lot of people don't seem to realise is that you can very much criticise Kaddish for Gaza and at the same time do so without resorting to the kind of language we saw. Well, we should stress again at this stage that Nina Morris-Evans was approached a couple of weeks back to appear on this show. And if she is listening and would like to have her say, she's always welcome to appear on this program anytime. I know that there are a couple of other points we were going to cover about this story, but I'm very aware that we are running a little low on time. and We haven't even heard from Fran yet. So let's bring Fran in at this stage, because Fran, you're going to shall we say, change directions a little bit from some very serious subjects to something a little lighter, perhaps. Sasha Baron Cohen, what's he been up to? Well, actually, he has been on a very, very serious project in a satirical kind of way. It's called Who is America? It's a new comedy series that launched stateside and then came over to Channel 4 on Monday night. Much like his other characters, Ali G, Borat, he dons disguises yet again and dons his accents, some of them a bit dodgier than others, and essentially sort of unravels Trump-era politics and culture by, well, the people he's interviewed have said that they were duped into speaking with him, and possibly that is true. But essentially... What's he said to that? I think he he's said that obviously they weren't duped, but at the same time, perhaps they weren't told that he was, you know, it was a satirical series. It was done in the guise of a very serious interview. In one sketch in particular, which has had a lot of coverage online, he actually dresses up as an Israeli agent who is an expert in terrorism and he interviews a whole load of pro-gun lobbyists who think that it's actually a great idea that he's come up with. It's called Kinder Guardians in which he decides that it's a good idea to give guns to children as young as four and he actually manages to 
get you know a lot of republican politicians on board helping to promote this kindergartens program some of them saying you know it's an absolutely fantastic idea for toddlers and gifted children to have weapons i mean it's absolutely ludicrous and to tell you the truth that probably was one of the quote unquote funniest moments i did try to watch the episode along with the 800,000 other people on monday night who also watched it not great viewing figures but then still ones that only jewish views can dream of well saying. absolutely <laughs> but <laughs> we're only how many short anyway but after about 10 minutes i did have to switch off it was it was too much Well, <laughs> I dare say that to anyone who wants to experience that for themselves that it will be available on demand, so I'm sure that you'll be able to enjoy it for your for your own viewing pleasure if that's the right way of putting it. But for now, thank you very much indeed. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for for a look at the paper for this week, but to Justin Cohen and to Fran Wolfish, thank you very much indeed. Don't forget you can pick up your copy though of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. You're listening to the Jewish Views in association with Jewish News. Now, as you've probably heard, almost 70 rabbis from across the religious spectrum have signed a letter to Labour's governing body detailing concerns over the party's decision to adopt a new code for tackling anti-Semitism. Well, one of the signatories joins us in the studio now to discuss this further. Rabbi David Mason is from Muswell Hill Synagogue. Rabbi, let me ask you first of all, this is quite extraordinary from the fact that so many different rabbis from every aspect of Judaism have joined together in this, which proves how serious it is. Yes, I mean, I've often been saying recently that one good thing that Jeremy Corbyn has done is to unite different groups within the Jewish religion in our country. <laughs> But of course, it is serious. And these matters uh, have brought rabbis together across the spectrum who want to, in a sense, express that mainstream isn't a narrow definition. Mainstream means rabbis from many, if not all, denominations across the Jewish community. And there's a sense coming together at this moment to put pressure on the Labour Party together. We know that there is, has been a growth of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. This is something that's rumbled on for now a number of years under the leadership, of course, of Jeremy Corbyn. And the protocols, the code of conduct is something really which is absolutely critical for Labour to get right all the elements of anti-Semitism. I'm not clear that it makes Labour an anti-Semitic party. And I would say that because there are many MPs and members, and even members of the NEC who I wouldn't call anti-Semitic. Well, This, they're Jewish for starters, some of them. Some of them are Jewish, but even those that aren't, I don't think I would necessarily go to just the Jewish. There are many members of Parliament, members of the NEC who are not Jewish, and who see this as a big, big deal. It's, it's very interesting. There's one Labour MP who apparently is Jewish, Margaret Hodge, whom I had never realised she was Jewish, who was absolutely flaming angry about it. Yeah, and I, but I think I wouldn't necessarily always go to the Jewish members who clearly are allies. And I would say that Jewish Labour Movement, the JLM, have done immense work within the Labour Party in trying to fight for a proper relationship with the Jewish community. But look at someone like John Mann, who's done immense great work supporting our community and its relationship with the Labour Party from within the Labour Party. So I think 
do we call the Labour an anti-Semitic party? Well, I'm sure many will, and I'd respect those that do. But there are many fighting within, and there's much to fight for now. It's very interesting because I can go back many, many, many years, and I can remember a time when I was young when most Jews in this country voted Labour and they considered the Conservative Party to be slightly anti-Jewish. And it wasn't until Keith Joseph became a member of Parliament, he was the first Jew to become a Conservative MP for very many years. And a lot of Jews that I knew were furious that he had joined the Conservative Party and had become a Conservative MP. It's funny, I was brought up in Edinburgh Pentland, which was Malcolm Rifkin's constituency. Ah, indeed. In the yes. 80s Thatcher cabinet, where you had, you know, Leon Britton and co. in the cabinet, and Nigel Lawson as so the Conservative Party. But, of but course, Margaret Thatcher but going was back, very... Margaret Thatcher was very, very pro-Jewish. She was great with the community. Yes. So, of course, going back, my great-grandmother collected subs for the Labour Party in Bristol in, one, in Tony Benn's constituency. Yes. My grandparents were... My great-uncle was supposedly a Communist Party member. My grandparents... I think my grandpa would, would very much a pro. So, yes, it is a generational thing. But I think I would say that's sad. I think that is sad because I think there are, in today's world, with the challenges of our society today, just as there are values that the Conservative Party express, which Jewish people will feel akin to, there are values in the Labour Party on the left politically that many Jewish people will feel akin to social equality, injustice, social injustice. And so that makes it for me all the more tragic that a Jewish person can't say who feels socialist, I want to be a supporter of Labour, but I can't because I'm Jewish. Is it because partly, I mean the Labour Party, is it partly because they are anti-Israel? I mean, it's well known that uh, Corbyn was very friendly with a lot of Palestinians. And this may have lead, led to the anti-Jewish feeling. I think it's probably even deeper than anti-Israel. There is a worldview which Jeremy Corbyn shares to an extent. Other members of the... You've heard it from people like Len McCluskey, the head of Unite. You've heard it from men, people within momentum, within the left, which is almost that Zionism is on the wrong side of history. The Jewish question sort of gets back in through this anti-Zionism, which is that we're on the wrong side. We're on the American imperialist side and we're the oppressor. And so it's very difficult for individuals like this to think of Jewish people now as victim. And this also goes together with the class concept, doesn't it? Because the left now pushes this class war, the old class war leftist concept. And Jewish people get associated with the wealthy masses. So the mural, the Enough is Enough demo just before Passover, was as a result of this mural, which Jeremy Corbyn seemed to not be able to see in it anti-Semitism. And I've heard others that know leftists who, what, it's, is it anti-Semitic? And it's quite clear in the mural, the anti-Semitic tones and tropes within it. But you see, the problem with anything classed as anti-Semitic as far as the Labour Party is concerned is Jeremy Corbyn has told this very programme that he is definitively not anti-Semitic. Now, what does this tell us? It probably tells us that he wholeheartedly believes that he is not, <clears throat> and therefore he believes that his views are nothing to be concerned about. However... When you've got a community crying out against him, saying, actually, no, there is something wrong, who is right in this situation? Is it the Jewish community, based on that so many Jewish leaders from all different denominations have come together and say, no, 
your attitude towards anti-Semitism is wrong? Or is it us for not recognising that actually he just doesn't fully appreciate what we believe anti-Semitism as a community to be? Do you Phil, see what I mean? Who, yeah. Who's right in this? Great. It's a great way of putting it, Phil. Actually, it's a really interesting way of putting it. In the IRA motion, which this all was about, one of the clauses was if an individual says that the Israeli state, the concept of the Israeli state is a racist endeavour, that is anti-Semitic. Now, that was rejected from the new code of conduct. And I've heard those who have heard from within the Labour Party high up that they worry about people being called anti-Semitic. In other words, I can say the concept of Israel, because of what happened in 48, its relationship with the Palestinians, is racist and not be considered anti-Semitic. That, to me, is a problem. Jeremy Cobble, of course, will say he's against anti-Semitism. I've talked to local MPs, people quite help the party, who are so warm when it comes to the sense of anti-Semitism. What Jeremy Corbyn means is rightist, racist anti-Semitism. If you are anti-Semitic in the sense of hating the other, fascism, racism, they will be out there. Cable Street is a feather in the cap of the left. They were out there fighting, they say, against uh, Mosleyites. But there is a, an element which also brings anti-Semitism, which doesn't sit well with people like Jeremy Corbyn. And they find it very difficult because for them to come out and stop it, they need to also go against many of their supporters. Who and are, principles. Who are, yeah, who are firmly against the concept of the state of Israel. So now what you're really saying is that there's not very much hope of getting them to change their views on anti-Semitism. I, I mean, yes, there isn't. I don't know if there is. I think, we're, I think what we are at the whim of what we're at the you know the mercy of is the inner politics and i think what we can do is know that we have many allies within the labor party i think that and i've said this to people i know i've said this on facebook that the political surges and spasms come and go so tony blair created new labor changed the party for good many have said of course you probably wouldn't say that now would you new labor has gone and i think similarly with this the Corbyn revolution, let's call it, has been within the Labour as a result of austerity, as a result of critiques of neoliberal capitalism. But it will also possibly run aground as well. It will come and go. There will be a recurrence of the more right elements within the Labour Party, a reorganisation. So I think, you know, I don't think this is, for, I don't think it's forever. I'm not a prophet. But I would say these things come and they might also go too. And but it might last for quite a long time, you were saying. You know what? In today's politics, who knows? Who knows? Who can predict anything today? Thank you very much indeed. I'm most grateful to you for, for your comments. Pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk on Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash The Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to the website jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, all too often, this programme has been accused of being a little bit London-centric. Well, 
you'd be forgiven for that because, frankly, we are based in London. But we're not afraid to venture out once in a while to see what some of the community in other parts of the country are up to. And now we head north to the great city of Manchester. In particular, we're going to be looking at conspiracy theory, A Lizard's Tale. It's a one-man show and the person behind it is Marlon Solomon. And I'm delighted to say that he joins us on the line now. Marlon, I suppose that First and foremost, we should really explain who you are, what you do. How would you describe yourself? Well, I'm an actor, really, by trade. And about a year and a half ago, I decided to venture into spoken word territory to do a show, a one-person show about conspiracy theories and links to anti-Semitism. And just to clarify, it's you would sort of consider yourself more of an actor, less of a comedian, because I know the show A Lizard's Tale <laughs> does sort of intertwine with elements of comedy, doesn't it? Yeah, sadly, a lot of them are unintentional. It's a yeah, sort of you-couldn't-make-it-up moment, right? Yeah, the show is funny. I've been told it's funny in places. It is, carries quite a serious message, obviously, because the subject matter is serious, but... A lot of conspiracy theories are ridiculous, quite frankly, and they, you know, it is quite funny, some of it, and it's done in a multimedia style with projector and there's images and video playing, so, you know, there is a lot of kind of visual gags as well. Now, you see, the term conspiracy theory is kind of self-made, isn't it? Because a conspiracy theory is only what one believes it to be. What sort of conspiracies are we talking about here? What have you come up against? And what have people been saying that makes you think, this is ridiculous, I need to put people right? Well, conspiracies are real. They're real things. I mean, the world is intertwined with lots of conspiracies. And conspiracy is generally quite small. Conspiracies are often quite small, but a conspiracy theory, the shortest way of kind of defining it would be to say it's the unnecessary assumption of conspiracy when other explanations are more probable. So it would actually just be easier to go and land on the moon than it would be to enlist hundreds of people and stage it and have them guard that secret for the rest of their lives. It's highly improbable. And usually with a conspiracy theory, it's big cause, big effect. It's usually something huge, like, well, say the moon landings or controlling a country or the entire world or 9-11. Conspiracy theories are generally not about small little things. See, the problem with conspiracy as well is that one almost begins to question where fact ends and where fiction begins, because so much now of the world is fed to us via things such as social media, through the news and all of the different mediums that everyone is used to absorbing information through. It's quite hard to interpret really where fact ends and fiction begins. How do you work with that in the context of the show? Well, it's very difficult and it's why it's quite pertinent to what's going on today because, I mean, conspiracy theories traditionally take something that's undeniable. There's usually a grain of truth in them. They take something that's undeniable and stretch it out to something that's unbelievable. And at the moment, with social media, with certain foreign governments pushing disinformation via social media, it's becoming more and more difficult 
to discern what is truth from fiction. So in the show, I go into that. I break it down. I use an example of the white helmets conspiracy theory, which are very prevalent at the moment on both ends of the spectrum. The white helmets are 3,000 and odd first responders in Syria. They're ordinary Syrian people, taxi drivers, former teachers, and they rush to the site of a bomb and they pull people out of the rubble because all the hospitals have been bombed. Now, there is an extensive disinformation campaign against them, fronted by the Russian government and the Syrian government to because they want to minimize their own crimes. And this is taken up by conspiracy theorists worldwide and the people that have a strange take on anti-imperialism, which blames the West for all the problems in the world up to and not including the Big Bang. So in the show, I break that down. I show the methods that they use to sow disinformation. And you can I use a screen and you can see how they do it by taking something with a grain of truth. So let's take the White Helmets. There were a couple of rogue actors in the White Helmets that did commit a couple, you know, one or two guys were seen carrying a gun and the White Helmets don't carry guns. And that's used as proof even though that the other 3,390 White Helmets people have never touched a weapon. So I just kind of show how they do it by using visual cues in the show, if that makes sense. Well, one can only assume that you've not necessarily been to all of these places that feature in the programme. So how do you decipher what the truth is and what the conspiracy is, if you will? How, how do you know that you are right in what you say? It's, that's a really good question. And it's I try. usually about, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's about weighing the probability. So if you take, I'll take the example that I said before about the moon landings. It's not impossible that it was staged, but it's highly improbable. Now, if you can imagine a piece of paper, say, with all the information about the white helmets on it, everything that we know that's indisputable and given given the sources that have given it to us. But on the piece of paper, there are certain words missing and there are holes in the piece of paper. Now, the conspiracy theorist only looks at the holes and the missing words and joins those holes together to come up with something that becomes fiction and completely disregards all the information. In life, there are gray areas, lots of gray areas, and conspiracy theories abhor gray. They want to make things black and white. I think, it's, I think an interesting stat that I use in the show is that of a thousand people surveyed, a third of people believe that politics is a struggle between good and evil. And that, uh, that's kind of part of our impetus to believe conspiracy theories. And often you'll see, I, I can detect a conspiracy theory because it does. It's just, a, it, 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 it disregards all the gray areas. Life is full of uncertainties and unexplained things that we don't know the answer to. And some of them we're just never going to know the answer to. And that's what conspiracy theories abhor. They can't, just as nature abhors a vacuum, conspiracy theories abhor any kind of uncertainty. And life just isn't like that. Well, I'm afraid that one topic that is covered in the show, which absolutely is not a conspiracy theory, is very much a, a real problem for this community of ours is something that we've obviously been speaking about on this show today, and that is labour and the problem with anti-Semitism. Now, you're actually using your show to help the Labour Party to understand exactly the point of view from the Jewish community. And am I right in thinking that actually your show is not has not only been performed at Parliament, but is the only show to have been performed at Parliament? That's quite an accolade. 
Apparently, it's the only one-man show, John Mann said, when he got me in. He got me in under the old party parliamentary group against anti-Semitism. It's, it's important to just stress that my show hasn't been sanctioned officially by the Labour Party. But I have been. I did the show at Labour Conference. I did it for the Jewish Labour Movement Conference. I'm a member of the Jewish Labour Movement. And various individual Labour groups have invited me to go and do the show for them as an event to help educate their members about anti-Semitism. Because... A lot of the problems that we're seeing now in in society, sadly, it, it, what you'll notice is that people don't actually know what anti-Semitism is. They don't understand what it is, how it relates to conspiracy theory, how it manifests. And I think, you know, we, we need more. For me, in my opinion, for what, why I wanted to do this is that I think the current feeling within the Jewish community about what's going on on the left and in the Labour Party particularly – I was feeling that we need, you know, a bit more of a cultural response to it because I work in the theatre and I don't see much about this kind of thing. The politically conscious Jewish stuff that I see seems to be about what's gone on in the past, not what's going on now. And I think we need stuff like this. Well, if people want to see it for themselves, you are going to be performing the show on various dates. It's actually going to be performed in Manchester. Have you got any plans to take it to London? Yes, it's coming to London on the 10th, 11th and 12th of August um, at the Bohemia in North Finchley. Fantastic. OK, well, that will please the majority of our listeners. But for those who are based in Manchester, tell us about where it's going to be in Manchester as well and how people can get more information. Yes, it's a, it's a theatre called 53-2 from the 26th to the 29th of July with a matinee on the 28th on the Saturday. And it's part of the Greater Manchester Fringe Festival. And you can get tickets on TicketWeb. There'll be tickets available on the door in Manchester. In London, you can get tickets on Eventbrite or just go to my Facebook page, Facebook forward slash a lizard's tail, one word. You can get tickets there. Tickets might be available on the door in London, but I can't guarantee because they are selling quite well. Excellent. Well, we will look forward to learning more about conspiracy theory, a lizard's tail. And we've been hearing about it from Marlon Solomon. Marlon, thank you so much for speaking to us on The Jewish Views. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Cheers. If you'd like any more information on any of the stories or need the guests featured on this episode of The Jewish Views, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, a Northwest London family are urging the Jewish community to support a football marathon to raise money for cardiac research in memory of Shani Berman. Shani passed away from a congenital heart condition. And I'm so pleased to say that Shani's mother, Juliet Berman, joins us in the studio now. Welcome, Thank Juliet. Thank you very much. Tell us a little bit about Shani. Let's put her, put her life and a little life into context. Okay. Well, Shani was born with a congenital heart defect called pulmonary atresia with a VSD, which basically meant that her heart and lungs were not joined together in the normal way. She had a hole in her heart and various other complications. Originally, the doctors said that she would be able to have a series of open heart surgeries to normalize her circulation as much as possible. And she did have one open heart surgery as a baby and various other catheter procedures. Unfortunately, she didn't go in the direction that they'd hoped and she did get started to have heart failure, which meant that they felt that they could no longer carry on with the repair process. And that was when she was about two. 
However, despite this, she actually did really well, um, a lot better than the doctors expected. And she was very um, normal child in her development. She went to school. First she went to nursery, then she went to school. She had friends. She was very feisty, bossy child. She was a real personality. And the heart condition was really very secondary to her life. She didn't spend a huge amount of time in hospital. She just did normal things, but she did have a lot of medication. And obviously, she did have nurses visiting and things like that. So her life wasn't normal, but she she got on with it. And we she always referred to herself as having a magic heart. So oh, she knew she was yes. different, but she didn't really understand the seriousness of it. When she was five, she started to slow down a bit and her she, she didn't have very good oxygen levels and normally a human person is 98 or so and she was about 70 on a good day and the doctors felt that actually given her robust nature that they would attempt to do a further heart surgery and if they if they hadn't done the surgery then she would have de- continued to deteriorate so they did the risky surgery and unfortunately she didn't survive beyond a couple of weeks after that she didn't come out of she intensive care it was just was it, was it a very rare condition that she had? It was rare in the combination that she had. So I, our consultant said you'd only ever seen one child before with the same sort of structure. The actual pulmonary atresia and the was not. Yes. It was but the whole complication of all of the things connected was unusual. Yes, yeah. and I suppose the impact on the family was huge. <clears throat> the impact on the ham- family is huge. Shani is the youngest of three children, but we always because we always treated her as normal. I think the children didn't see her differently and she didn't see herself differently so obviously when we lost her it was a big shock to all of us we didn't expect it and obviously certainly the children didn't expect it. And you wanted to have a legacy for her how did you manage to even get up out of that black hole to start actually using her name talking about her? Yeah that was very important to us from the beginning that we wanted to do something but obviously it took us a while to work out what it is we wanted to do and we spent a bit of time thinking about it and my husband kept saying you know we want to do something in her memory and I kept saying I'm not sure what I want to do yet I'm not really ready to to decide we knew we wanted to do something and as you say we really wanted to make sure that we were always using her name and that that we kept talking about her in a positive way and then in the summer last year a friend of mine actually suggested that we took part in the shine night walk which is for cancer research and she came up with the idea that we could do it in Shani's um, in Shani's name, we raised about £29,000, something like that. There were about 20 of us in the end that, that, oh, that was all girls that did the walking marathon. And I think from that, we, we realised that there was something we could do with our friends, with our family, and that we could make something worthwhile out of it. And then we. So we've now come to. Shine for Shani. Shine for Shani. Which actually yes. sounds, it, it rhymes, it sounds lovely. Exactly. And what is Shine for Shani? What is the event? So Shine for Shani is is the name that we're using for the charity now that we raise money in her memory. And what we're looking to do is to raise money for research into child heart conditions and paediatric cardiology, specifically at the moment at Great Ormond Street, although potentially other projects as well and we've actually identified with Great Ormond Street a specific project that we want to fundraise for which looks at heart transplants in children and the effect that it can have on their long-term immune systems potentially has very wide-reaching implications for 
children of, with, of all kinds of transplants, but particularly children with, with heart transplants. And we have committed with them to raise £70,000 over three years um, to fund that, to help to fund that project. So I how can say. we help? There's going to be a lot of people listening that will think this is just extraordinary. It's a wonderful thing to do. It's fabulous. And everyone's right behind you in keeping her, her memory alive. What, what do we do? Oh, uh, thank you. Well, well, so one of the things that we're doing particularly is trying to organise events to fundraise in her memory. We have a Just Giving page. So if people would like to donate, then that's fantastic. If they want to support the marathon, football marathon, I should say, then they're welcome to. You have to tell us what a football marathon is first. I will. (laughs) So the football marathon is an all day football match, 9am to 9pm at the uh, Power League. One match, sorry. They're normally 90 minutes, forgive me, are they not? Yes, it's one match. So we divided the day up into half hour slots. And in each slot, we'll have 10 or 12 players on the pitch, we'll have two teams which we've named after the two hospital wards that Shani m- spent more of her time in, Walrus and Bear Ward. And the two teams will go all through the day, but different players will come in. So we've got slots for youth, we've got slots for children, we've got specifically slots for girls, kids coming in from... Like, Anybody is welcome. Anybody is welcome, but they do need to sign up to to join right. it because we are, we've got quite a, a lot of it filled now. However, there's a lot of fun on the sidelines as well so we've got a bake sale and we've got ice cream van and a raffle and all kinds of other things as well so it's sort of a hopefully a fun day out for everybody but obviously not the whole day <laughs> how does football come into this was it particularly important to your family and to shani herself not to me and not to shani um it actually really came from my son who's 14 year old boy so that says it all really but he he had initially had the idea of doing an all-day football match as part of fundraising for his bar mitzvah and with one thing and another he we didn't do it because the time wasn't right and but the idea was still there that we wanted to to do that and obviously kind of getting into the momentum of the world cup and everybody suddenly knows everything about football we thought that would be a good opportunity to to do that and we my husband also likes a bit of football and all of his friends so that's that's where that came from we wanted to do something that would involve all the family and those that aren't going to be actually on the pitch, I mean, I don't know whether you yourself are going to be uh, in goals or heaven knows what, people can, can bring... Is that the technical term? I have <laughs> not sure, the goalie. There are, you said there were other things going on around yeah. around the side, so tell us a bit more yes. for, for, the, for non-footballers so amongst us. So for non-footballers, and, and I have to say most of the footballers are men, although we have got some younger girls playing, there is arts and crafts and we've got glitter tattoos we've got a bake sale which my daughter and a couple of her friends are running and all kinds of other all kinds of sort of and how do we things. find out details the, the best place is to look on our facebook page which is just shine for shani um, shine find, for us, shani s-h-a-n-i yeah, yep. yep and that's got the most information on it and all our contact details and so on and we'll make sure we put a link on our website as well. Thank when is you. the actual date of Shinefish, Danny? The, event, the football marathon is the 29th of July, so Sunday week. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now on to a completely different subject, one of which 
that we were all saying before this show started today that none of us actually know that much about. What do you know about the history of the pogroms, in particular relating to the Ukraine and Belarus? Well, personally, I don't know very much. And I suspect it's a very similar instance with you because most people would be forgiven for thinking that the Holocaust overshadows most horrible events in history. Well, luckily, there is an organization known as the Felstein Society. They are based in New York and they are doing their part to try and commemorate this horrible moment in history. Because let's be honest, all of these moments in our history are vital to our survival and to where we are as a community now. And to tell us more about it and exactly what happened in that moment in history, I'm delighted to say we can speak to the president of the Felstein Society, Alan Bernstein. Alan, I suppose we need to start off with first and foremost just establishing Felstein. Are we talking about Felstein in the Ukraine? And if so, why are you in New York? Well, I'm in New York because my grandparents emigrated to uh, the United States in 1913. That's my mother's parents. And they came from the town of Felstein. It was called Felstein in those days. And now it's called Vardiske, which is the Ukrainian name that they assigned the town after, I probably think in about the 30s. But that's how my family came to the United States from the town, as did Hundreds of other people come from the town to the United States and various other places, Canada, even the UK. So people left that part of the world in mass before the turn of the century and and after the pogroms and, and through that whole period of time. Give us a brief reminder, or actually not even a reminder really, because like I said in the introduction to this, a lot of people probably don't even know that much about it. What actually happened at the time of pogroms and what ultimately led to the demise of 200,000 Jews and ultimately a mass exodus and certainly considerable number of those coming to America? Well, there was a serious backlash after the Russian Revolution in the Ukraine and in the countries surrounding the Ukraine. Uh, the whole, what was called the Pale of Settlement, experienced a tremendous backlash from the militias that and the generals that were assigned to take military charge of that part of the world. And as part of their effort to cleanse the Ukraine and that area of Bolsheviks, or people that they felt were associated with the Bolsheviks in, in Russia, the generals, uh, Petlura, Denikin, a bunch of other people, formed these militias that went around to more than 1,200 towns and basically conducted these uh, ethnic cleansings, you might call them, that's we, the term we use uh, these days, where hundreds of people in some places were slaughtered in Felstein, which was the second uh, program after Proskurov, now called Kemelnitsky. There were 600 people slaughtered in, in our town over a period of uh, several days. Uh, it was a truly horrible period of time. More than 250,000 people were killed, in about 1,250 towns throughout the area. It does sound, I mean, the way you've described it, absolutely horrific and, and akin to the, the hideous events that happened in, in the Holocaust and the, and the persecution. We know it's been overshadowed to some extent, but unfortunately we haven't heard of so much about this, but why now? Why are you creating um, events and, and calling this to mind? The events in Felstein took place and really the pogrom 
drums began late in the in 1918, and Praskurov and Felstein were among the first pogroms in the area. And what we are approaching in 2019 is the centennial memorial. And in the Jewish uh, religion, the remembrance of uh, those past typically occurs on a date that the person passed away. And for us, February 16th, 2019, will mark the centennial memorial or yurtzeit of the people who died in our town. And we felt that the centennial was a something that really should be promoted as a, uh, a very significant re- remembrance, not only because of the people who were killed and because of the lives that were lost and the culture that was destroyed and the property that was stolen and trampled on, but because of what's happening in the world today and because of the 65 million refugees that are that are without homes and without health care and without education and without livelihoods and, you know, the the tremendous problems that we think humanity is uh, yet to face based on that situation. And we feel that it's very timely for us to be calling attention to what happened 100 years ago and making a statement that humanity really needs to pay attention to these things. How long did this terrible ghastly pogrom last? Well, in Felstein, it lasted over a period of about five days. There was one group that came in on February 16th, and then they left, and then another group came in a few days later and committed almost as much horror as the first group. But in Felstein, it was five days. In the whole region, it was was about three years. It was uh, from about 1918 to about 1921. But the pogroms in that area in Eastern Europe were going on for centuries, but not with the frequency that they occurred during that 1918 to 1921 period. Well, Alan, you're going to make sure as an organization that those individuals who did fall at the hands of the persecutors are not forgotten. Tell us a bit about who will light a candle. That is the name of the event. And and what are you hoping to achieve with it? Well, we're hoping to achieve publicity, first of all. We're hoping to achieve public awareness about these events. And we're hoping to be able to stimulate the really hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people around the world whose families came from this area. It's very unusual for me to run into a person of the Jewish faith in in New York City whose family does not come from a part of this world. In some cases, we've come up with information that we haven't been able to fact check, but we came up with this very interesting quote-unquote fact. You know, these days of fake news, you've got to be very careful what you say. But we came up with, with a, a statistic that indicated that 75% of the Jewish people in the United States are Ashkenazi from this part of the world. Wow. So therefore, I run into people and they ask me what I'm doing and I tell them about the society and I tell them what our plans are and I tell them what we're doing. And they say, turn around and say to me, oh, you know what? My grandmother came from there. Well, my grandfather came from another town. They shoot me the name of the town. And, you know, it's, it's unbelievable how 
unconnected people are to their past and how little they know about where they, you know, where they where their family came from and why. Well, it is thanks to organizations like yours, the Felstein Society, that hopefully by the end of it, they will know more about it. But for now, Alan Bernstein, president of the Felstein Society, thank you so much for speaking to us on The Jewish Views. Thanks so much for having me. It was wonderful, and I appreciate it very much. So does thank the, you. all my members. Thank you. Well, what we'll do is we are going to make sure that we put a link to the Felstein Society on our website. But if you would like more information, then it is Felstein, spelled F-E-L-S-H-T-I-N, Felstein.org. And now the rabbinic thought for the week comes from Rabbi Ben Kurzer of Edgware United Synagogue. Sadness is an emotion we never want to feel, but can be so important to experience on occasion. Many cried when England lost recently in the semi-final of the World Cup. And I myself remember how sad I was as a youngster in 1998 when England lost to Argentina on penalties. There are many things that make us sad, and although our tradition tells us that the month of Av is a particularly sad time for the Jewish people, I rarely see people crying over Tisha B'Av, the fast of the ninth of Av, when we mourn the loss of our temple. Yet our sages tell us that one who is able to mourn the destruction of the temple will rejoice in its rebuilding. Only those who really feel the loss will truly feel the joy of its rebuilding. But that is hard for us to do. How does one feel the loss of a building from over 2,000 years ago? It's perhaps even harder for us today, as we have merited to see Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel for the first time since our exile began. What our tradition teaches us is that we're not crying over bricks and mortar that were torn down millennia ago. Rather, we're mourning what that means for the state of the world we live in today. The lack of a temple in our time is indicative that we continue to make the same mistakes as a nation and are not yet ready to be united in one house of God on earth. And that should give us pause for thought. The Shabbat that precedes the fast of the ninth of Av is called Shabbat Chazon, the Shabbat of vision. It's an opportunity for us to look into what our nation and our civilization have the potential to be. A chance for us to tap into God's vision for the world as it ought to be. Even if we're not yet ready to have all the answers and to solve all the problems, the first step is to appreciate that there is something to be sad about. While we do not have the temple, all is not right with the world. And if we can truly feel the sadness that comes from that recognition, then we can look forward to the day when we will rejoice in that vision becoming a reality. May it happen speedily in our days. Amen. Thank you to Rabbi Ben Kurzer for his thought of the week. And thank you too to Rabbi David Mason, Marlon Solomon, Juliet Berman and Alan Bernstein. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, Kate Fulton. Me, Phil Dave. And from me, Clive Roslin. 
Do join us next week here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.